What you're about to hear is a talkback for Episode 7 of Streams and Variations. If you haven't heard Episode 7 yet, please check that out first, as we will be discussing the stories and songs from that episode. Let's get to it. Welcome to Streams and Variations Talkback. My name is Jamie Johnson, and I'm joined this evening by my co-host and co-producer and friend, Mr. Sean Erker, as well as... Oh, say hi. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> I interrupted you, as always. Hello. <laughs> we are joined this evening by uh, award-winning playwright Stephen Elliott Jackson. Hello. Award-winning playwright Ron Fromstein. Hello, friends. And award-winning playwright, no, uh, the award-winning songwriter, Miss Julie Now, Hello. We start ever off every stream with a prompt. And uh, this particular stream was started off by our friend, Mr. Sean Erker, with a song that he wrote. Um, I'd like him to talk about that first. The prompts we've kind of alternated in, in uh, one of our earlier episodes. We uh, used a song by uh, Dave Newbury. Uh, we used a public domain song for a later episode. And then for this one, uh, I decided to use one of my own. Eagle is grounded. I'm afraid she won't fly. Because uh, this song actually has its own kind of history of uh, inspiration and streams and variation style, because this is actually this song was actually based on a speech. Uh, it's uh, a speech that was written for Richard Nixon in 1969, uh, and uh, it's considered uh, the most beautiful speech that was never given because it was a speech that was written in case the Apollo 11 astronauts landed on the moon and couldn't get off again. They won't throw parades for us now, but death has its own kind of fame. Fame. Hearts stay calm when the deep takes your soul. Pilots know a thing or two about so, uh, yeah, somebody at some point raised the issue. They were like, okay, they're going to land. What if they can't get off? You know, what happens then? Well, I guess they all die, uh, and we're going to have to prepare for that eventuality. And so they wrote this speech that is basically just like, hey, everyone, just so you know, there's a bunch of people on the moon. They're going to be alive for like another six hours, but then they'll be dead. Uh, good job, everyone. Uh, and so you can read the speech, and it's, it's quite touching. It is a beautiful speech. And for whatever insane reason, I decided to write a song kind of from that perspective about this event that never happened based on a speech that was never given. So that was kind of a weird uh, origin for it. Um, but it's called Don't Look Down. Don't look down. Don't look down. And 
And uh, I sent that to Stephen. So maybe Stephen wants to talk about how that turned into his piece. So I have, I have to, there's a little backstory. It goes back like a year. I have to tell you this to this piece was that I had been working on a piece about a year ago. Sean remembers that time period for Operation 24. Uh, Sean was doing music for the first version. I was in the second version. And I wanted to write this piece. And I couldn't write one character story because I got no people of color in my group of actors for my piece. So I had to remodify the whole thing. And I had this character in my mind for a long time. And I said, you know, I got, I'll keep these characters in my mind if I need to, if I ever get a chance to write them. And when you guys asked me to do this, I was like, this is a great opportunity for me to bring out one of those characters. There's like nine characters in the show. I've never got a chance to bring out almost any of them. So let me do something. And so I went out for a walk and don't look down. I'm playing in my ears. And the first verse I'm going, oh God, that's not my characters. Um, Like not one of them. And then the second verse hit me and it was, they won't throw parades for us now. And that line was like the, oh God, that's that character that I want to write like a year ago, but I couldn't write because they weren't, like, I couldn't write that character. Uh, and so that line was my first version. At uh, first, uh, I said, that's it. And then I, as the, the song went on, I'm like, oh my God, I can totally hear my character. I can totally hear my character. So I'm like walking around my block. And it must be like kind of crazy out there. And then I came back just to make sure I heard the words right. <laughs> so I read the read the PDF. And there were so many things that came out. Like, And this just the title itself was very like in my face. Like, I know why he's not looking down. I know why he's not looking down. And there's a good reason why. And so, yeah, that, that second verse, that one line through it, because that original piece I was writing like a year ago was set on a parade in Philadelphia. And it just was like, boom, there we go. We're all there. We, it's, you know, I, I have to write this piece now and I have to write this character. Yeah. I eventually met her mother. It was during a parade that September, but it wasn't to celebrate any of the men who came home. It was the end of influenza. Ah. They wouldn't throw a parade for us now. But for her father, death has its own kind of fame. She seemed like a nice enough woman. But she was very upset at her... That, that's such a, an interesting approach to take that. Um, you just have these characters in your back pocket that you walk around in. That you're just like, you know, as soon as you, you need them, you, you throw them out there and you have everything already pre-prepared. That's quite, uh, quite useful. You know, maybe I'll... Uh, Maybe I'll use that as well. And it's it's actually a fun uh, variation, uh, to use, I guess, the exact term, on what we do here. Because it's like you took, you had these pre-existing characters, but you put them into the world that the inspiration gave you. So it's like the box was presented to you, and, and you had those elements that you then brought this other story that you wanted to write into, and so her, sort of created a merger between them. Yeah, you know, it's for me, uh, so I've done so many of the 24-hour playwriting competitions, and then one thing I've always learned was go in with like at least five ideas. Go in with like five ideas because one of them, like I'm, I'm not sure if people, other playwrights have this, but I've got these like stacks of other plays I've never written that I want to write characters for. And these are great moments to try and bring those characters out. They're like, they're great. Like there's a deadline, there's a due date, there's something and you you can't get away from it. And so, but these characters have been sitting in my head for like the last year and I haven't been able to dive into them. And uh, other plays came and came and went, came and went, came and went. And then I said, I really want to write this character. And then all of a sudden, when I listened to the song, I heard that character. And I heard moments of that character coming out in the song. And it didn't feel unnatural. And it, didn't, it, felt, it felt very rich and very vibrant. And I could just see it in my head. 
and that's yeah that was kind of kind of cool and you know i i do like to keep ideas i like to keep ideas kind of backed up and care sometimes characters um and with history especially too that's the other thing that got me about the song was there was history in that song i knew there was something in that song that was so ingrained in history that i love to write so it was it was perfect. Yeah, I, I couldn't imagine a better song to give you except for that one, especially with the things that I read of yours, because you base so much of your stuff on history. And I, I always wanted to ask you, why is that? Is that just because of your love of research or why, why you base so much of your work on, on historical fact? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, no, you know, I know. Ever since I was a kid, I loved history. And so on top of it, I loved American history uh, since like I was like eight. Uh, my my parents bought us the World Book Encyclopedias when I was eight, and if you remember the books, what's interesting about that the only parts that were in color were the presidents, and so I just grew. I just would read the president sections, and I and I, like an eight year old doing this is like it's just kind of weird. And but my parents never said anything different. They, they just kind of let me do it, and then they would take me to you know Mount Rushmore, or they would take me to Teddy Roosevelt's Cabin in the Badlands, and so this love of history is instilled in me and my family was very much about family history as well too. And so that kind of all came together. Uh, I just stayed with it. That's I'm still that little kid, eight year old who goes to those, you know, historical sites. I've been like 13 presidential homes and I'm going to bound a doom into all the rest of them, but I'm still that kid. But now I've got that adult insight into the things that they didn't tell me or the things they, they kept away. So a story like this would never have come into my world when I was eight, of course, because, you know, it just, you know, my, I don't know how my parents would ever explain that, first of all. But um, that love of history just has kept going with me. And I always have said to people, I said, with so many great stories in history, why do I need to create one? <laughs> there's so many great ones out there. Like, it's like, and there's so many stories we don't know. And this is kind of a story that I wrote that um, a lot of people wouldn't know or connect with, but it happened. And it, I mean, not as much in Canada, but still did. Um, but uh, it's something that was very important to me to write that story. Yeah. I'm so fascinated by monologues in general. I just have to say, first and foremost, it's, um, I don't know, it's really unique for me. It's not something that, that I know how to do. So um, yeah, but I, I just thought it was really, really powerful, really emotive too. Yeah, I'm not really sure that you don't know how to do it. I mean, your songs <laughs> themselves are are a type of monologue in a certain way. I mean, the the one that you write today, which we'll get into later, of course, is from a very singular perspective and comes from a very character-driven perspective. And I think it, it falls under the category of monologue. Yeah, but I think, you know, I think this format really, you know, inspires maybe that kind of writing. But I think I think in a monologue context, for me anyways, there's, you have to create so much more because you don't have the music. You know, obviously the actor's True. delivery is a big part of that as well. But, um, you know, you have to create this landscape just with words. And, uh, you know, I think that's something where a lot of songs don't necessarily live well without the music attached to them. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's easy to kind of distract people with that part. Can I just say that also like Jordan Hall was really good. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I, yeah. I, I friended him after I heard it. Cause I said to him, I said, I was just floored at how good he was in it and that delivery mm-hmm. and stuff. Yeah. So yeah. Jordan is a particularly wonderful actor. We did a production of Titus Andronicus together where I, he was my errand to my Titus. So I've always wanted to get back with him and do some work. So that was very nice. I thought that was really neat as well to have, actors do it i mean it seems so obvious to me now but i didn't expect it i was like oh cool it's not just you know it's not the writer 
necessarily and I think you know in this case obviously it's um especially important um for sure but I thought that was really unique as well just to have I think in my mind I have like a monologues delivered on like a poetry slam stage or something you know like by the writer and I think it was just really cool to have to have the actor give their um you know give their delivery of it it was it was awesome it's i think even when we do have the writer performer people uh you know we always get a different performer to do it because it's nice to have that other layer of interpretation to add on to it uh to give it a, a little bit of uh, a new uh gloss a new voice a new uh uh point of view and perspective i i'm so glad i didn't have to read it uh i recently had to do a, a reading session and I'm that writer who writes everybody but me on a stage, it feels like. And so it's really weird for me to, like, read a woman of color in her 50s. <laughs> it's, it doesn't quite have the same effect that you really want. Okay. So I really appreciate that. One other thing um, about Stephen's monologue when we got it, uh, we try to not do too much kind of... Uh, uh, sound effects, Foley work, uh, kind of that like radio drama style uh, TV without the video. Um, and uh, that's just because we we like to focus on the, the, the words. We like to just give the piece uh, kind of the narrative space to unfold. Um, and Stephen sent his in and it had some like key sound effect stuff that he wanted. And I was like, all right, Stephen, for you, for you, we'll do it. But then we got yours, from Ron, and, and we got Emily's and... Those as well had very strong sound elements to them that were carried through. And I was like, all right, I guess this is a sound effects episode. I guess this whole episode is just going to have Foley in it. But it worked out pretty well, I think. So I, I wasn't sure if I should give you... I actually write very few stage directions. It was kind of one of those things where I'm like, should I give you some sound ideas? Like, it wasn't like this is set in stone. I was like, should I give you some or just in case? Or, yeah. I remember going, it has to be authentic. It has to be, This voice has to be a voice you would think you would hear and yeah it, it's hard because that is his home and he has to almost deal with the fact that that's his home and it, the fact is we're still there like we're still having that conversation now uh we're still yeah. you know around black lives matter and all it, you know going on right now is it's still our home it's the only place that we know but there's so many variables that would make you want to not love the place anymore or not have any connection to it but the fact is that our bodies, our hearts are still connected to mm -hmm. it somehow. And just to play into the other stuff coming up in the episode, it's uh character's kind of trapped in his home to some extent, you know, uh, a bit more metaphorically than uh, maybe the other characters. But uh, that's a theme that I think crystallizes a lot more fully as we go through this episode. Which means that we're going to move along right now to our next piece on this uh program which is a song called pissing contest by winter rowan the very and the truth beneath the world don't look down don't look down before you go and they went off and started a war Took their heroes to kangaroo court. But never heard a word from the family. 
Well, for me, it was interesting to hear the piece after mine. And what caught me was, um, more than anything, the feelings of the character kind of feeling like they were facing a trial no matter what they were doing and whatever life they were living. Uh, and that was very much character that I was drawing on. And it's interesting that Winter also found that. It was interesting to see that brought out. It was interesting to hear that. And also just kind of the verbiage, like kangaroo court, uh, was I hadn't heard that phrase in such a long time. Uh, but it felt very close to what the trials and tribulations would have been. And I saw that really interesting connection between the two pieces. Yeah, which brings up uh, one of the points that I'd like to try to reiterate over and over in, in most of our programs is that your monologue and Winter's song have the same kind of landscape. They sit in the same place. Not necessarily exactly descriptive of, yes, it's set in the same time and everything, but that has that same basis of reality, that same kind of feeling that I like to call a landscape. And and that, that again, carries through through a lot of these pieces as well. They all seem to sit in that place um, where all of these characters that are coming up, there's like this, this, this yearning of these characters to know what's going on. That, that craving for resolution, that craving for something that might seem uh, comprehensible to the, the mind, almost to some degree, I think, that, or the heart or anything. And I, it's funny, that's what I, when I was listening to all the pieces, I remember the one thing where there almost was so no, no sense of conclusion in a lot of ways, or there was an abrupt conclusion, or mm-hmm. like they weren't allowed to fully be themselves completely, even in that span of time that we were given, right? that they still couldn't be their own people completely. Ron? For this one, the vibe of it, it was just so ethereal to me. And that's the thing that stuck out. It was very like um, the ethereal qualities. And that, I mean, I listened to it when I was writing it. Stephen was saying before uh, that uh, he comes in with a a few ideas of possible things to go into it. Um, And my thing was, I just try to repeat it so much that I block out any of their ideas I had. So it's a bit different. So I let it swamp over me. Uh, and I mean that in a positive way. And again, just two different styles, not not wrong or right. Uh, so that's, sorry, I had some caffeine before you asked the question. So if I give really long answers, you have to help me out and be dude. I asked you a simple okay, question. Okay, then I'm going to stop you just for a second because I'm going to tar- turn to okay. our friend, Mr. Sean Urker, and uh, ask him what he thought as well as give us a little rundown of what uh, Winter thought. Yeah, so the the song that I sent to uh, Stephen was um, uh, set in the 60s, and Stephen changed the, the setting to uh, uh, the World War I, and Winter uh, took that narrative setting, uh, but as a style of music, they moved it back into the 60s uh, without knowing uh, where that original inspiration came from, which was a, a fun little twist, I thought. So, Winter says, uh, I got not that far into the monologue when immediately my brain went, oh god, World War I, and everything lifted off from there. Uh, the idea of the so-called Great War as a pissing contest is something that I've actually thought about a lot, and I was taken back to my grade 10 history class, learning about the main reasons the war happened, about militarism, alliances, imperialism, and nationalism. Uh, In short, it was a pissing contest, and that thread stayed with the song as it changed. Uh, I I originally wrote a completely different song uh, with different melody, beats, and lyrics, but it kept feeling wrong and too literal, which isn't really how I write, so 
it ended up sounding cheesy to me. Maybe if I was a poet, it would work, but that's not my so style of songwriting. I ended up going down a Wikipedia rabbit hole to inspire myself more because I love research and writing. Uh, so uh, they're a good follow-up to you, Stephen, I suppose. Uh, my best ideas, in my opinion, have come from me just looking stuff up and reading about things, and Pissing Contest is no exception. There was obvious imagery in the monologue. I ripped Don't Look Down and The Sound of Birds and the concept of a new day dawning. Uh, I ended up with an omniscient point of view that is more a commentary on the climate of World War I in the years following. In a lot of ways, it's about the circus which surrounds crime and oftentimes the lack of media response to injustice. I wrote a very 1960s or 70s Bob Dylan-inspired folk song, a time that had a similar social climate to the late uh, 1910s and into the 20s. And is again similar now, times of immense change with immense pushback, but also with perseverance. It's a reminder that our work is not done and it's important to keep fighting. Uh, There's yeah. another concept in, in these two pieces that, that I think is very uh, important to bring up is that they both actually touch on the whole concept of the lie of the military. And the lies of what the military is and what they do and how they treat people and all of the rest that gets encompassed in the whole concepts of war. And I think it's it's very, very interesting from my point of view is that despite the fact that the next piece doesn't go into that, it still has the feelings of that right from the very beginning. <laughs> and uh, from this point of view, I'd like to turn this to uh, Mr. Ron Fromstein to go back to where he was a minute ago and continue his explanation. I guess that, that does take on. us into Ron's piece. Uh, dream how you dream how you dream the lowering says the judge and I am lowered in fits and starts and starts and fits and lowered further and further still and as this goes on as it continues I try not to look down I really really well, first of all, I thank you for saying that it has the feeling of it without the specificity. Because when I look over my notes for it, I somehow missed the word World War. I just got war, uh, even though it says World War in the song. Because I listen to it again over and over again because I'm trying to get the emotion. So sometimes I miss the words. But you'd think World War, that would probably be a pretty key phrase that a person should be picking up as somebody whose job revolves around listening. Um, uh, Stephen said before, but one of the words I got was, um, kangaroo court, which was just an interesting, that phrase jumped out at me, um, circus. Cause again, that, that lends into that. And the other one, just this beautiful phrase, a promenade of black widows. I was like, Ooh, that's a, that's a beautiful little, little visual. And then I think for writers, if I can speak for writers in general, once you give us the word dream, we're just going to run with that. Cause the dreamscape, like you said, Jamie, it's too irresistible. You can't, one, you said dream. I'm like, Oh, you had me at dream. Because it just opens up to painting something that's like uh, dreamlike, but you have to ground it, which is a fun challenge as a writer to create uh, a landscape. But it can't be so big that it's not real, but it can't be so real that it's not dreamlike. So that's sort of a fun space to play with in between. And I couldn't resist it. Yeah, which is very fun because uh, I've, I've, uh, I always considered you a very... I hope don't take this in the wrong way, but a very straightforward kind of playwright. I don't take that in the wrong way. I take that. Yes, please carry on. I mean, you do. You don't play a lot with the concepts of abstraction or or huge metaphor where things are written to mean other things. You're a very concrete 
writer. You write about things, we see those things, we feel those things, and that's the way they come across. Well, Jamie, I anticipate you'd say that. So just for spite, <laughs> I wrote a very abstract piece because I'm, I'm not mature. I'm good at writing, but I'm not a very sophisticated person. So I thought, you know what, Jamie Johnson? No. Uh, yeah, no, that's a fair assessment. Um, uh, again, because it's the you're playing with source material, so I was like, oh, how can I be true to the source material? And when I say I press repeat, I would go to take a nap, have the music on, and just let it repeat, repeat, repeat to the point where I was like, I, I don't know anymore. You just see what, you throw all the past against the wall, and you see what sticks. So um, I just let my brain, that's the joy of a challenge where you've already got sort of some source material. You're not responsible for it. You just have to extract the things that are interesting. So I take no responsibility. I blame you, Sean Erk, or you, Jamie Johnson. <laughs> I, th I thought it was, I mean, this is the piece that then crystallizes, I think, what we use to uh, frame the entire episode. You know, this takes us very much into dreamscape land, uh, and we don't really leave from it. I think we kind of stay there for the rest of the episode. So, uh, you know, good good for you, Ron, for for uh, paving the way for us in, in, in that regard. Um, um, I really liked how uh, you took a lot of, winter's uh uh metaphorical imagery and just kind of like put it through a dream filter so that it becomes you know weirdly literal and you know you're wandering through uh the, the this landscape of of the kangaroo court at the end being these exes who are <laughs> dumping people into the well uh and I also like how the Don't Look Down lasted quite a while, you know, if I can be a little biased because it's coming from my original piece. But, you know, that that seemed to uh, carry through a bunch yeah, of pieces, I mean, which is kind of fun. It's kind of a, I don't know if a dream is the right word. It's more of a nightmare to be judged by all of your exes. Um, but yeah, I thought it was really interesting, you know, and I th think the way that it was captured, it was captured really well. You know, I think when we're in those dreams, they kind of just evolve and, and, you know, you can't wake up from it too. It's, it's like, it just kind of keeps going and things connect, but not in a way that always makes sense. Um, so it was, it was cool to see that, that captured in this for sure. I think in terms of the dream itself, what I wrote down here is that um, it allow the first part allows the dream to take hold. Act, your, what I was ex calling Act 2 is at the point where the character accepts the dream and it gets scary. And then Act 3 is that the personal dream, what Stephen was referring to, the change from the outside into the inside, is when it gets really freaking scary. It's that accepting of that space that landscape that all of a sudden makes it even more scarier and scarier all the way on. The fun challenge for me for, um, I don't know how you, you, everybody experienced it, but um, it's how do you impose a three act structure on something that may or may not necessitate it. But I always like first act, second act, third act, because it just makes it very clear in my brain that we're going from this to that, to the next thing. The, uh, the thing that's so interesting about the piece is that it's, it's set in the present tense but the character is describing a dream as if they're experiencing the dream as they're talking. You know, like they're talking about, oh, the 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 corn cob that is that is on my leg and it's trapped me. Uh, 
that is happening right now. That is at the moment. And you have to say, who are they talking to? <laughs> who are they talking to in their dream? And what's, you know, the happenstance of how these things are cre- created and one of the, the benefits of, of having other actors interpret things and you get to kind of see where these pieces go. Um, Loren uh, uh, Hereda uh, performed this piece and she did this excellent job with it. And we got it in and, and unfortunately there was a little bit of an audio uh, quality issue, which caused me to narrow the wavelength bands <laughs> to, to try to clean it up. And so as we were doing that, I kind of was like, oh, we could we could frame this whole thing like a telephone call. It wasn't a, a, an original creative decision. We kind of got pushed into it because of the circumstances. But as soon as I did that, it felt like it made so much sense for your piece. Uh, so hopefully you weren't upset that I added a little bit of creative license by framing it as a telephone call. But suddenly, and it just became this weird telephone call from a dream. Like someone's calling you from the dream. And they're describing this insane reality. Uh, when I was uh, listening to this piece, I, I, I had the worst time listening to this piece when I first was, I, I'd go on my walk, I'd be listening to the piece, and it was like the noisiest traffic ever, so I was like trying to catch all the words and all the things, but then after a while, I, I caught on, uh, we were talking about the whole idea of dreams and nightmares, and that just how blurry that line really is. Like, we have this idea of dreams being positive and nightmares being negative, but there's such a blurry line between the two. Uh, and what they can mm-hmm. actually mean. The other thing I caught on about this episode was so fast. This monologue was so fascinating. Was the first half felt like I was in a Stephen King novel, like it was like corn and <laughs> I don't know what was going on. And then it turned into the utterly personal nightmare, which was the X's. And it was like this kind of space between what we would think is a nightmare and then what a real nightmare would be for us, and that facing those X's. And it was really quite interesting because I've written a piece about all my exes at one time, <laughs> right? I had like a whole play about all of them. Um, and it was, it was a nightmare even just to think about writing that piece, let alone being faced by them in that same moment as well too. And I thought that was, that was what I really loved about the, the about the piece. And then the phone call, we need to said that to me. It reminded me of this old um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock presents or uh, Twilight Zone episode where uh, a woman keeps getting phone calls from someone and she can't hear who the voice is for the longest time. And then she realized it's her ex, her, her, her dead husband and a wire line fell on the grave. It was a creepy episode. I loved it. I totally stole it for an English class uh, one time, but it reminds, there was a lot of those qualities that had that feeling of like that old, uh, the, that um, like twilight zone nightmare, those types of things. It was really quite cool. And there was quite a neat connection. It seemed to go from like one period to the next. I love that. Um, which brings us to Shadow in the Dark by Tyler Check. Out here, well, it feels like I can see forever. But what's real is that you're waiting for me. And I can see up above me the wind howling in the trees. As it shakes the birds free. This song was interesting because it was probably the most musical sounding, like tra- traditional musical to today's musical that I, I have heard actually on the, on the entire podcast. Um, what I love with a lot of the songs that I hear is that they, I love folk. I just, there's something about folk, instrumental, acoustic. I just, there's something I love it about so much. And this felt actually like it could have come out of, out of like a show like Wicked. 
<laughs> to some degree, right? You know, there was something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, I quite like that. And I like the simplicity of it because uh, not that musicals can't be more complex. There's a lot of really great complex musicals out there. But sometimes you don't have a long time to tell a message. And you've got that two hour or two and a half hour time span. And that song's got to do. And, and this one was very clear in its message. It was very clear in what it was saying. Uh, and it still held on to a lot of what Ron's monologue was going into. Like, I, I just saw all the connections there. And so, yeah, that was I, I just like the clarity of it. That was very cool. Yeah. So, Ron, what do you think coming from your piece? Does it keep the underlying message, for lack of a better word? Oh, uh, that's a, uh, it's a very good question. I'm trying to answer it. Um... Honestly, does it keep the underlying? I don't know if my piece has a message, but in terms of, like you say, playing with the style, um, message-wise, I'm it's hard for me to answer. But I think style-wise, I, I I thought it did it justice. Like, but at the same time, while doing its own thing a bit, I, I think so. But I I don't know how much I can add that's different than what Stephen just said because it was I was listening. I was like, oh, that was very articulate, and then I was like, oh, I got to sound. I got more to add. Uh, that's my excuse too. Uh, Throughout this entire episode, all the smart stuff that Stephen is saying, I was gonna say that, and he just got to it first. So just so everyone Stephen knows. ruins everything. I said, hey, let's not ignore the fact that I gave you guys three of the four warnings. Okay, let's just oh the uh, content warnings. <laughs> yeah, on this episode. On, on the episode. Okay. I was so proud of that. And I was next... so so proud of that. I was like, yes, totally. So, that's what Stephen's here I for. Should've, I should have been smoking while I recorded mine, and then we could have added that in there too. <laughs> So Tyler says this about his piece. Uh, The monologue I was given had some really beautiful imagery in it that inspired me right away with the idea of fighting your demons, facing judgments, and things coming back to haunt you. Uh, The monologue seemed to be from the perspective of someone who is already in a dark place, unable to really appreciate the beauty around them until they are forced to face their demons and own up to the things they've done. In other words, they have to face their shadows in the dark. I also love the kind of outsider main character who has a sense of humor about all the dark things around them. Around them, I love the part about having a cigarette with your ex. So I wanted to infuse the song with a bit of a good time as well, almost a nostalgia for some of the past drama. The pace of the monologue also seemed to be quite quick and pick up even more as the piece went on. This also inspired me in terms of how I tried to grow the Im- instrumentation in the track. Finally, the end of the monologue where the character is being lowered down was quite powerful for me and influenced the type of effects such as reverb, echo, and uh, that I chose to use on the song. Uh, yeah, so that's what uh, Tyler has to say. That leads us to the big adventure in crying for me, which was a piece called My Sunflower Half by Emily Komiyama. I just found myself in the laundry instead of my bathroom. Seven years of law school with honors and I still can't navigate my own house. You would roll your eyes in a cute way and steer me in the right direction. But you're not here right now. I'm not quite sure why, though. Did I miss the memo on a business trip? Oh, I'm watching my toast like a hawk at the minute, hoping to God I can at least do that right without your help. I see a very big nod from you, Julie, on this one. Can we talk to you first? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so I got this piece as my my inspiration piece, and um, 
you know, as discussed earlier, I'm not as well versed in even reading monologues, actually. So it was a cool experience for me to read this one um, because it really it really drew me into it uh, right off the bat. And it was so well written that I could feel myself in the space. You know, I think that was something that for me, I am. I'm a bit of a procrastinator when it comes to my writing process, as many people are. And, you know, I remember sitting down with this being like, okay, Julie, you have to at least read the monologue and then maybe try to work on the song. And I read it and it was, it was just so, so emotional, like of this, this woman being absolutely caught like trapped in this space where you know she didn't know she felt like this person was missing or she wasn't really 100% sure where she was trying to leave her house she was kind of half awake half asleep and she kept getting lost within her own house and then trying to leave um, and not being able to Um, and you know it's just absolutely heartbreaking I think there was a lot of elements for me that um it was i think i thought it was really interesting that when someone leaves you whether it's through death or through a breakup or whatever it's not just about the fact that they're gone it's it's what is left behind you know it's what the gap that they left there where maybe they filled in part of your life by helping you get around or helping you do this and and i thought she highlighted that really well as well um, but yeah, an absolutely stunning piece for sure. So, so I had a really hard time when I was listening to this piece. Uh, so my grandmother had Alzheimer's and growing up and of a lot of that memory, those memories came flooded back to me. And the only time it's ever happened like that was I remember seeing this movie with, was it Kate Winslet and J- Judy Dench? Iris. And horrible date movie. Uh, I was a bottled mess up on the seat. And this same had a very similar feeling to me. Uh, there was such, it was transparent enough as a, as a monologue to tell you the story but there was such a disjointed feeling between moments in it that made it very real to the an alzheimer's experience or a dementia experience and the anger at not knowing what's going on around you the anger of not being able to find what you're looking for um it just it brought back a lot of experiences for me when i was listening to it and just i remember when she can't find the the, the francesca and she can't find the two sons and dave and getting the names all mixed up and like i after a while i was getting i was losing track of names and going but that's what it's like that's exactly what it's like you're losing track of every sense of order going on in your head and that's exactly what this piece really translated to me yeah i thought she captured the 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 quote fracturing uh, of of the character's mentality quite well and and for me it was like a callback to what ron had written too because his was a fracturing of reality except his was in a dream world rather than a real world although it had that same concept and feeling that sort of for me um that that emily's piece was a sort of like a mirror image in the real world of what ron's was doing in in the dream world just in terms of the fracturing of image and mentality and, and all the rest of it. Uh, did you find anything like that yourself, Ron? You guys are so articulate and you come to me afterwards. How can I to add to the articulation? It's a, it's a tough spot <laughs> in the lineup. I feel I, like you're, I'm... You're first next time, okay? I'm uh, sorry. No. Uh, I, just to echo what you're saying, I think when I listened to it, um, it was really emotionally effective because like Stephen, 
I, mean, I think like everybody listening, everybody has a grandparent or an aunt and uncle where you could, you have a way into that narrative. And then after I listened to it, or maybe not right after, but after it sat a bit, it was very intellectually satisfying because we have the, I'm glad that piece was last because it complemented, like you're saying, the other piece, but it was totally, the other pieces, but was totally different. So it sat well, like a good meal where I'm like, oh, this, these were all different types of joys in a meal. Because sometimes you're like, oh, that another thing after that, that was too similar. But they were, my palate felt very taken care of. Um, and emotionally, I, I agree with uh, Stephen to the point where you're listening. And at one point you reach chaos as a listener, but then you realize, oh, there's a point to the chaos. Because at first I was like, what am I? And then I was like, okay, like it took me a bit. I had to re-listen to part to go, okay, I missed, but I missed, it was purposeful. So that was, um, I felt that technique was very effective. Because it brings you right. It's not that you're intellectually aware of the chaos. You're feeling it because I couldn't track everything. So you have to re-listen a bit, or at least I did, to track it. And then I'm like, oh, I'll get it. I'm now I'm with the character emotionally and intellectually. Boom. How's that for going last in the lineup and still having some thoughts to, to say? That's pretty darn good, <laughs> yeah. sir. But if I can top it, um, obviously the piece bears a lot of... Um, stylistic similarities to what Ron was doing with a dreamscape uh, with this sort of dream logic, which is then translated into uh, uh, the, the Alzheimer's or de- dementia as reality uh, for this character. Um, but the narrative also parallels a lot of what Stephen built in his monologue. Um, you have this character who uh, is to some extent, on their deathbed and the way that the, the story ends, uh, she's suggesting that this is kind of a, a, a deathbed speech uh, that she's giving. And um, it's a, a life flashing before this person's eyes that is really a love story. And it's a story about this relationship and this love that is central to this character, which bears a lot of similarities to what Stephen wrote. It's these two different lives that are framed around uh, this key relationship. And uh, it's them looking back on it at the end. Um, so, you know, it was interesting how it it, it it captured elements of both Stevens and Ron's monologue in terms of style, I thought. Um, and in fact, uh, Ron's yours is also kind of about love <laughs> in a, in a yeah. very yeah, distorted yeah, way. Is. So we got three love stories. Yeah, no, Ron's, I, I think Ron's is too in, in that in that dream logic way of I've surrounded myself with all of these loves of my life, although they're not coming at me at the way they were in the first place. Um, that character is surrounded by all the people that he has loved in his entire world. And I also just want to, before we move on, I just want to give a shout out to uh, Patricia Casey, who did a fantastic job reading this piece. Uh, amazing performance. Absolutely loved it. So Emily says, uh, as I listened to Shadows in the Dark for the first time, I immediately had a sense of someone being released from a long-term tension. Instead of focusing on the trauma of being trapped within their own mind and body, I focused on the ultimate release of that, with the central character finally at peace after a long battle with dementia and the way her mind dealt with old memories before passing. So, um, yeah, uh, kind of just like we said, taking some of those elements from Ron's piece and uh, reinterpreting them. Yeah, and passing through Tyler's too, because Tyler's has this sort of underlying feeling of that at the same time. It's uh, the, the, the underneath tones of this stream seem to play um, more fully than 
others in other streams than it has in other streams. There seems to be a, a basis that sort of pulls us along through this entire stream of writing, which brings us to the final song of the this particular episode, which is "Trapped" by Julie Neff. I feel so trapped in my body, so stuck in this house. I feel so lonely and helpless, like I never get out. You said you'd always be with me, you'd always be mine. And it's not just that you're leaving, it's that you're leaving behind. So, Ron, before we get to Julie, um... <laughs> Would you like to say anything, sir? I, I, I like my place in the batting lineup. I, I appreciate your... Uh, it's very exciting. It's good for me. <laughs> He's like, no then Not to worry. Julie, what did you pull from Emily that got you to the place you were with this song? First of all, I should say, I also... I, I read this once, and then I immediately picked up the guitar and started doodling. Um, and... For me, what really jumped out was that sense of, of not being able to leave, you know, being trapped in this, you know, also in her mind in a way, right, where she, um, you know, she just didn't know what was happening and kept trying to leave and the windows were melting and the door wouldn't open. And um, I think, you know, I started writing and obviously using this piece as an inspiration, but I think a lot of my own personal feelings came out too of, of you know, this year and like, and I've had my own health struggles too. And there is an element of, of feelings trapped in your own body where you're like, or even, you know, where we all have our own habits and things that sometimes are hard to move on from. And so that sense of just wanting to get out of that cycle, but not being able to for for whatever reason. So I really zeroed in on that. And then also this, this absence, you know, this absence that was left after, after, you know, a longer term partner leaving and, and not having that person there with you to, to help you through the things that they used to. And, and, um, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to highlight that as well. Um, so that's kind of what, what, came out with the chorus, so to speak, like, I feel so trapped in my body, so stuck in this house, I feel so lonely and helpless, like I'll never get out. Um, you said you'd always be with me, you'd always be mine, but it's not just that you're leaving, it's what you're leaving behind. And and I think that for me was was a big element of of sort of the, the absence and the, the things that um, I think when you've been partnered for so long, there's there is a gap, you know, there's there's something that that really um there's there's an empty space that's left for sure it, it was saying it you're talking about that right now about how you know trapped in like the the idea of me being trapped all year and then you know often we trap ourselves so much in our own cycles mm -hmm. and our own processes and stuff like that and how do we mm -hmm. break out of those things and uh it was that's kind of interesting to hear all these f six pieces side by side and there's so much of everyone being trapped. <laughs> like, I think it's something that we all kind of feel very earnestly inside. Uh, and how do we get out of it? I, again, I, I love the kind of the folk sounding of your piece as well too, which I really love so much. There's so much imagery you could place in so many different places and so many situations that you were in uh, where we are feeling like that. Or, you know, I've, and it's so interesting here over this past year, how people felt trapped being alone, but at the same time trapped when there was so many other people. Or it's so interesting that, 
you can have almost that same instant feeling and that this song kind of captures all that yeah and i think the the lack of distraction too right we we really employ distraction to free us from some of those thoughts or or situations and and we just don't have that as an option for me as a songwriter too like to be very frank a lot of the time it's um I avoid the process of writing for as long as possible until it's like it has to come out or there's no other way about it, you know? And it's it's kind of an interesting sensation physically where it's almost like I've done everything I can possibly do to distract myself, to avoid it, and then I sit down and it's like, okay, physically it, it's got to come out. And it's, you know, it is a you're almost trapping that whatever that is um, inside of you and, and not giving it an outlet to come out. So um, yeah, so I, th- I feel like there's, there's elements of that too. And that's why it's so, I mean, just being part of this process was so great because I always love a, a reason to write <laughs> that is outside of myself. I'm like, give me, give me something outside of myself to write about. Cause it's uh, you know, it's so much nicer to kind of work in that collaborative space. The thing uh, that I love so much about this piece is how universal you made it while still perfectly capturing Emily's piece. Uh, You know, and in fact, when we got uh, your piece and it originally came in, I listened to it and I'd kind of forgotten the piece that came before because we're doing multiple episodes at the same time and I'm not entirely sure. I was like, which piece was this in response to again? And listening to yours, I was like, it just seemed so universal and applicable to everybody that it, I, I didn't even occur to me that it was Emily's piece, which is so specific to a very different point of view. But then as soon as I looked at them both side by side, I was like, oh yeah, of course this is in response to Emily's piece. It's very obvious inspired by that but you made it so universal that I, I I didn't immediately even ping to the fact that it's about you know an older woman in a very specific kind of a uh, situation um, which is uh, a skill that I I don't think I have at all you know I think as we discussed earlier when I write a song in response to something it's very much looks like the thing that it's in response to so uh, I think yeah. that's very impressive Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I think that's my writing style. I don't know, like I was saying earlier, I don't, you know, I I don't often write narratives in the sense that where it's really descriptive in the same way. Um, So, you know, perhaps it's, it's a bit of a, an old habit that (laughs) continues to come back. But um, yeah, I just, I think, I think when something touches you emotionally, for me anyways, like songwriting is, is almost purely emotional where, it's like, it's really got to come from a place of like, what am I feeling? And what did this strike in me, you know, and the response in me. And so that's really where it came from. And um, I was really pleased with the result. It was not, um, you never know what's going to come out in this sense. But like, but I kept singing it. It just kind of kept, it was really stuck in my head for, for a long time. Um, and And then when further to the procrastination theme, um, I had to send you the song, uh, you know, Thursday evening. And I'm like, Thursday evening mountain time? Does that work for you? Great. Um, but, I'm, you know, I was, I was also, I have another I work as video producer too. So I was working on that during the day and then trying to squeeze this stuff in at night. 
And I really sat down and I was like, okay, I've got these like three different parts that could work, you know, for this song. And, and how do I, you know, how do I put them together? How do I write something else? And I thought it was just interesting for me anyways, how it did come together in the end. It's not, it wasn't a typical song, I guess, that I would have written where there's a first chorus, first chorus kind of structure. Um, so I felt like that also helped with the theme that came before it of that maybe a lack of, a lack of structure, right. In it where there's, um, you're kind of just flowing through those different emotions and the different moments that, that she's experiencing. I think there is a structure that fits very well with Emily's piece, especially the recall, the, the re-coming back to things. The, the, there's parts of Emily's that, that do this cyclical thing where she comes back to the child again and again, and the image of, of Danny over and over and over again, <clears throat> and this sort of circling back and seeing what's there um, and revisiting the things that are there um, leans into the fact that I also think that you've found... The yearning? No, I just, that's definitely something that I felt in the delivery of it vocally as well. Like, and when, when I sing it, it's very like, it's a, it's a rushed, almost a rushed feeling, you know, like, I feel so trapped in my body, so stuck in this house. I feel so lonely and helpless, like I never get out. Like, it's just very like. There's a tension. Like, yeah. There's a tension and it's like really weirdly fun to sing like cathartic i guess <laughs> the feeling of oh like... now i have to say something uh, I'll, I'll add this uh julie one thing you said that i thought was um uh, beautiful when you said about um feeling like procrastinating but it feels like as a listener that i can't speak like i wasn't there when you were doing that but it feels like it was gestating because then when you say it had to come out like you can feel that in the music uh, the 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 immediacy of it so it, for me listening to what you're saying that like you say procrastinating but i feel like it was growing but i know that thing of like oh then it has to come out because it's very satisfying as a listener because then it feels like it has this heat attached to it and i, I think that's like a fun thing to hear as part of the creative process i that think makes that is a very kind interpretation of my songwriting process and i think that i should try to have as much kindness for myself as you do but you're absolutely right like i think you know like you're talking about listening to the monologue while you're napping i think for me, a lot of it's usually, it's like write the thing or have the idea and then walk away from it for a while, right? Um, and then come back and, and see see what happens. But um, no, I appreciate that. I think I think that's a huge part of the process. It has to, yes. it has to form somewhere, somehow. Well, that brings us to the end of our uh, lovely discussion this afternoon. I'd like to thank Stephen Elliott Jackson, Julie Neff, and Ron Fromstein for coming in today and giving us a little insight into their processes and uh, their their writing ideas. Um, I'm going to pass the particulars off to my uh, friend, Mr. Sean Erker. Okay, well, thank you. Um, so our next episode, episode eight, is coming out May 31st. Um, uh, if you would like to contact us, you can reach us at streamsandvariationspodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter at our handle is at variationspod. Um, and if you would like to find all of our episodes, as well as more information on all of the artists, as well as copies of the prompts, including the one we discussed in this episode, you can find it on our website, Streams and Variations. Dot com. Uh, that's about it. Hope you uh, join us next time. Mm-hmm.